Hello and welcome to the In Orbit podcast. Now, before we start today's episode, we want to take a moment to pay tribute to our dear friend and colleague, Yang Skolmly. We're really saddened to inform you that Yan has passed away since the recording of this episode. Yan was a brilliant mind and a consummate professional. He had a career spanning over three decades, during which he made significant contributions to the development of launch technology. He was instrumental in the design and the development of several high-profile space missions and was a prominent figure in the global space community. His passion for space exploration was contagious and he inspired many to pursue careers in this field. Jan will be sorely missed and we dedicate this episode to his memory. Hello and welcome to In Orbit, the podcast exploring how technology from space is empowering a better world, brought to you by the Satellite Applications Catapult. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell, and in this series, we'll be in conversation with some of the most inspiring minds in the country, exploring the ways that the UK is using space to make huge differences to our everyday lives, as well as gaining a better understanding of its role in shaping and sustaining our planet for the future. In today's episode, we're continuing our exploration of launch from the UK and beyond. And I'm joined in the studio by Mike Curtis-Rouse, Head of In-Orbit Servicing, Assembly and Manufacturing at the Satellite Applications Catapult, and remotely by Jan Skolmi, Chief Commercial Officer at Orbex, and Jeff Fage, the Co-Founder and Chief Revenue Officer at Radian Aerospace. The launch market is changing rapidly all the time, both here in the UK and overseas. In January of this year, Virgin Orbit conducted the historic first ever orbital launch from UK soil. However, the mission unfortunately failed to reach orbit. But space innovation is never without setbacks, and our journey towards becoming a space-faring nation is showing no signs of slowing down. Well, listen, thank you very much for joining us. We're going to talk about launch. We're going to talk about UK launch. Hey, in the old days, rockets would just go straight up. They still do, mostly. And now there's all kinds of crazy things. There's rockets attached to planes and there's rockets attached to rails and, and the spinny thing. The spinny is, thing. What's the, the, spinny, the spinny catapult Spin thing? launch, but nothing to do with the catapult, just no. to quantify that. Just before we actually start, why have we diversified into all these different... What, what's wrong with just going straight up? <laughs> really I, w- I would say in a way Jeff's a good person to almost answer that but what's wrong with going straight up probably more is everyone's trying to find a more reliable way of going straight up but a cheaper way but I think Jeff based on your background you probably can give a, a better answer than that I definitely can you know uh, I'll, I'll wax philosophical for a minute and good. get into a better answer nice. but uh, when I was early in my career I always remember rocket engineers endlessly arguing would it make sense to do horizontal launch? Would it make sense to do vertical? And there, it was always an endless religious almost argument of you could get this advantage or that advantage. And I always used to think of myself as an agnostic. Uh, you know, whatever works was how I used to think about it. But in my time at Radian, I've, I've gotten a much more nuanced opinion. And that is that uh, essentially the advantage of systems that don't go straight up of horizontal system is that hopefully, and 
sort of what we're designing our company around is that you can get a higher cadence, that you can get faster turnaround, more turnaround out of a reusable horizontal system. But that said, vertical systems are probably, at least for known technology, are always going to be able to lift bigger payloads. And for the really small payloads, they probably make sense too. So the way I would sort of answer that question is that for certain applications, for sort of the mid-size of the launch market, for the human side of the launch market, the potential is that horizontal systems can have massively higher cadence than other systems. So the, the real appeal and the real excitement and the reason that at least our company is tracking in that direction is to try to get cadence true operationalizing aircraft-like operations out of space. That's that's sort of that's how we are, we are looking yeah. at the problem. Can I be really stupid and ask you what you mean by cadence? The number of launches, how many you get on a given vehicle, how often that given vehicle flies. So in, in, in so, a way, we could use that analogy about, Jeff, you were touching on it, about aviation, basically. So if you look yes. at a big airport on any one day, you've got thousands of flights taking off. For space, I mean, I think last year we touched on, Jan, you probably could comment on this, last year we touched on about, it was a couple of hundred launches, but it, we're getting to that point where we're almost seeing a launch a day, but not quite. So the name of the game is more frequently and, and cheaper. Absolutely. Depend, and also, depending on what you want to send up, whether you... The more frequently you can do, the more yeah. reliable you can do, the more you can move, the more it becomes commonplace. Yeah. And just, um, Jeff, for those of you who haven't heard of Radian, for those people listening, just can you just explain a little bit about your system, what it is, what your horizontal system looks like, and what the aim of the game is for you? So in the, in the range of space vehicles... Radiant Aerospace is building uh, what we would think of as sort of a middle-sized launcher, nowhere as big as what you see you know, SpaceX doing and nowhere as small as many of the small launchers that are coming into the market. So it's a medium-sized vehicle. That means it can lift about 10,000 pounds or two and a quarter thousand kilos into space. Think of it as an airplane-type vehicle, but it, instead of departing straight up like a rocket, it launches off of a, what we call a launch rail. So think of a, a very robust or very heavy railroad track, and it launches under rocket power from that track, goes to space, does whatever it's going to do, and then returns to land on a normal runway. Can I just um, say, when you say like a rail, do you mean like a kind of ski jump? So it goes along horizontally and then- No, up. no, think like a true two miles of straight rail, like a like a three-rail railroad track is a very good way to think of it. Not, It doesn't have an angle to it. Yeah. It's flat. It's it's just providing the advantage of allowing So from a UK perspective, think next generation HS2, call it HS to the space, basically. Yeah. Long railway line, pretty much track. At the end of it, the space plane is going so fast, well, it's, you're not going to hold it on the track. So it's just going to whiz off and not whiz quite straight up, but whiz off in the direction over the horizon and then go straight up. That's awesome. I remember as a child watching pictures. Well, I had a book that had um, John Stapp in the American desert strapped to a rocket sledge and his retinas <laughs> becoming detached. Well, from, well, from for memory. what little it's worth, for what little it's worth, we're definitely um, using technology that was derived from rocket test sleds for sure. Excellent. That's great. Um, and Jan, just just while we've got you, just while we're on this particular subject of, of shape and and different types of vehicle, what's um, just talk to us a little bit about Orbex for those who are unfamiliar with Orbex. Yeah, happy to do that. That's a more sort of uh, straightforward going right up rocket, and um, it's one of those that you assemble them horizontally and then you erect it before you launch, 
and hopefully you'll take off and, and that's the last you see of it. The size of it is, um, you would have heard about Rocket Lab, which has been a big success. Yes, in New Zealand. Yeah, and they have a rocket that is approximately 150 kilograms, 150, in so-called performance. So that's the sort of size we have. I mean, you can make a rocket big, you can make it small, and you can make it very small. Uh, I think we have found, we believe we have a sweet spot, Mm. where there is a market for that type of, of payloads. If you look at customers like SSTL uh, here in the UK and others, that would believe that there is a, a, a market for that size. So that's what we're aiming for. And uh, it is 150 kilogram to so-called 500 kilometers synchronous, which is the most common orbit for smaller satellites. And, and as the name suggests, you move with the sun, so you have sunlight all the time, etc. Right. That's the most attractive for especially Earth observation if you're taking pictures, etc. So that's the market we're aiming for. We are launching from the north coast of Scotland, pretty much as north as you're going to get in mainland Scotland, which is uh, ideal for... I mean, these satellites, you can't launch them from the UK, you can't launch south. You can barely launch east because you then get over France, etc. The French, so get they don't mind if we if we drop things on them. They're no quite... one's really keen about anyone dropping anything on anyone. We generally it's frowned upon, especially no, first enough. stages of rockets. <laughs> I mean, it, it is a it is a fact that the first stage of the rocket falls down. That goes into the water somehow. But you just got to find a safe zone to do that and that is um it's a really good point actually i think people don't really realize the geographical importance of launch site there is a reason why florida is used because of the rotation of the earth and you get a, a, a free you get the the energy that free bit you of get boost. That gravitational boost exactly. and there's a big ocean there so your first yeah. stage you can get, and likewise in you know in kazakhstan as well you've got basically nothing there but on the other on, hand you find with the chinese for example a long march five care less so their second stage or their first stage tends to fall on overland and that's that's one of the, the the big challenges about launch and when you touch on space sustainability where do you put that first stage if you have a first stage i mean and, and that's, you know, that's yeah same yeah. mike with some of the russian vehicles like a proton that has a drop zone on the ground so you know it's going to hit on the ground somewhere yeah but where is it and what is it going to drop off in terms of fuel and stuff well there's there was lots of problems i know with that actually the, one of my favorite stories is some of the kazakh farmers there was a particular fuel tank in the first stage of the Soyuz. i think it was a helium fuel tank and they, they would rush out and get it. And they'd get all the metal and use that for cattle sheds. But the helium tank was exactly the right size as a cooking pot. And they used to make Kazakh stews in it. Interesting. We need there to get our go. hands on one of those. I was going to say on this topic in general, I mean, that's sort of one of the whole parts of the story, right? Is that the, the Radian vehicle does not drop a stage, right? Yes. So we don't drop a stage at all. So while that's there's a lot off. of regulatory... Yeah, right. There's a, but, but while there's a lot of regulatory complexity... And it may be quite a while before we get there. In theory, we could depart from anywhere over a populated area because, like an aircraft, we're not dropping parts along the way. Hmm. Not intentionally. I mean, you, 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 <laughs> right. it's, if we do, you know, it's a much bigger problem. Exactly. Well, we're on this, this subject. Why is the UK a good place to launch from? I mean, given what we've just said about Florida and Kazakhstan, we offer none of what Florida and Kazakhstan can offer. What does the UK have to offer in terms of geographically? Well, I mean, fundamentally, I mean, we can answer this one or two ways. So, I, I mean, I know Jan will chime in here, but I would say fundamentally the UK isn't a good place to launch from. 
Now, that's slightly controversial. controversial slightly controversial there. Um, hopefully, I'll still have a job at the end of this. <laughs> but slightly controversial in the fact that the UK isn't, as both Jeff and Jana basically alluded to, in terms of you can only get into one orbit realistically, which is sun-synchronous. But sometimes it's not necessarily about being a good place to launch from, per se. It's about the rest of the supply chain. So the UK has had a reputation for a long time for manufacturing the highest number of very small satellites. Now, I think that number has probably been exceeded elsewhere, right? but only very recently. So we have a very complex supply chain of um, high-value manufacturers, high-value skills, and other capabilities, which mean we do good avionics, we do good structure, we do good propulsion, we do the integration of satellites, and we have huge amounts of finance effectively support innovation jobs etc and other talent around it so it's not necessarily about being the best location to launch from but it's one of the best locations to bring a really complex supply chain together so you can go from idea or innovation through to manufacture through to test and then launch more locally and is that launching more locally important is does it make economic sense to launch more locally rather than having all the brilliant things you've discussed and then moving it to a launch site that's more favorable somewhere near the equator the answer is sometimes so if you're going for basically speed and you're going for cost, but you don't probably care so much about when you launch and who you launch with, then probably not. Mm. If you want to go up on your own launcher and you don't want to share that with anyone else and you want to be able to guarantee a slot in the future, then launching more locally makes sense. Mm -hmm. Is it going to cost you more? Probably. But does it mean right. you're not waiting for effectively a launch manifest of 30, 40, 50, maybe even 100 other companies to come together, or you're dependent on another nation, so this is about sovereign capacity to an extent, waiting on another nation which says, actually, we could launch you, but we're going to prioritise something right. we're doing first. So it's a bit of a compromise. Absolutely. That's absolutely right, Mike. And, and um, also, there's a, there is a cost element, because if you make a satellite in the UK, it's going to be easier to just stick it on the back of a truck and be at the Scottish launch site in the morning yes. than it is to pack it up, import it to India, or export it rather. Uh, same to the US. That takes weeks and weeks. It is a lot of paperwork. If you're launching on SpaceX, you have to get there very early these days. So there is an element of a cost making it easier a bit as well, launching from your own country, for mm. instance, or, or if, from a neighbouring country. And Jeff, can I just say, a radian planning to launch in the UK as well is, is your big super train rail. You could use HS2 because I don't think they're finishing it. You could borrow their rail. <laughs> we think of our vehicle as a global solution. That is, eventually, it should be able to operate from a modified airport almost anywhere in the world. Now, when we think about, you know, good places to launch versus bad places to launch, it's like Mike said, it's kind of a sometimes argument, but the, the interesting thing in terms of how you rethink your math from the perspective of a, a launch operator, and we actually are moving away from that terminology, but we'll get to that later. When we sort of rethink our math, it's that there are places in the world where to get to certain orbits, you're sacrificing a great deal of performance. And except for a synchronous and a few others, Except for that, yeah, the UK, you do sacrifice a good deal of performance. But the, the interesting point that we kind of really began to work our way through with the Radian concept was that sacrifice is okay when you don't throw the ship away. You know, the way I look at it is a, an airliner operating out of the middle of the desert where it's, you know, 40 degrees C in the, uh, in the daytime is going to have lower performance than it is out of the UK. It's going to carry less cargo. It's going to carry less people. It's going to carry less fuel, what, what have you. 
but they accept that as that's just, you know, the cost of doing business in that part of the world versus another part of the world. And the eventual goal for Radian is to build vehicles that are based all around the world, that are, you know, support sovereign operations and local companies all around the world. And in some places, we're going to be accepting significant performance losses. But if you don't throw the ship away, that's a cost of doing business, not a reason to never do it. I'm interested in, Jan, the word that you brought up a couple of times, market. I just want to know, we've talked about the logistics, but why are we wanting to launch things? Why is this suddenly we've got this mad dash for lots and lots of different companies to come up with novel ways to put things into low Earth orbit? Who benefits from this? What is the the reason for this? Well, I, I think it's several reasons. I think the customer, if you like, will benefit from having access to all these things. And also there is a cost element that satellites, as I think I might mention, the UK make a lot of small satellites, which means that they are getting a little bit cheaper. So you can you can build and um, yeah, design, manufacture a satellite much, much cheaper than you could do before. And uh, if the launch guys can can keep up, you can also get them to orbit uh, a lot cheaper than you than you could earlier. And when you when you say these things, what what things are we talking about? I, I'm just trying to get a sense of what how big this market is and what it is you're. So the be market up. is massive. I mean, we're going for a bit of a new revolution right now in terms of previously in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we've been launching satellites which basically mostly do something for the Earth. So they look at the Earth, they tell us about the climate, they uh, give us high resolution imagery of the Earth, they tell us about the weather, they give us telecommunications, they give us positioning. We're beginning to now move into that market where we're also looking about what do we do in space. So manufacturing things in space to use in space, manufacturing things in space to bring back to Earth, the next generation of space stations, the replacement for the International Space Station almost certainly will be a commercial platform. It won't be an amalgamation of nations coming together as a big science project. It will be a series of commercial organizations building space stations for commercial purposes. And all of these things need life support, they need infrastructure, they need capability, they need people. So having the mechanisms to get people there, get more product into space to do things with in space, that's driving that demand for launch capacity. And when you when you say it's a revolution, is it a real revolution? I mean, it's funny, you know, you, when some new technology comes along, people talk in terms of revolution. You know, I, can't, I, I was talking to someone the other day, we were talking about AI, and they were like, no, 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 AI is going to be bigger than fire. It's going to be bigger than, you know, where in the, in the, in the sort of sliding scale of revolutions. Well, AI is, is almost certainly going to take fire away from humanity. Where, um, <laughs> that's, so that's, that's going to be interesting. Podcast. Exactly. <laughs> but I, um, it is a revolution in a way, because in the past, we've looked at space as this place where we go to understand our cosmic origins or we go to get satellite data to do a variety of things. This is suddenly about a new marketplace. And I was trying to paraphrase it earlier today in a different conversation of it's not so much basically saying space is a market to do X. Space is basically this new frontier where we can do everything. So it can be pharmaceutics, can be manufacturing, it can be tourism, it can be transportation. So it's like a new land, and it's suddenly this new land that launch gives us access to. Yeah, that's interesting. I've I've heard it described the idea of of low Earth orbit as almost like a new continent, sort of waiting to be, you know. And that's exactly it. But the key thing about transportation and new continents and new places to do things is exactly if you can't get there, if you don't have a canal or a railroad or a runway. You can see it, but you can't do anything with it. We can now see it, and we can now begin to actively do something with it. And that's why we need launch. Yeah, I, I think, it, I think, as Mike said, there is a revolution in terms of time to get things ready, cost to get it to orbit, mm. and the uses you can give it these days. 
it's not just to to take a picture of the Earth every five hours. You you can do loads of other stuff with the satellites that are now being built much much cheaper. I think John really captures that part of the market well, and and. A thing that's worth saying is there are multiple sub-revolutions going on at different parts in the market. Uh, a lot of what Mike was just saying about sort of what I, I think of as next generation activities in space, whether it be the emergence of private space stations, and it's not going to be one replacement for the ISS. I can think of offhand, I can think of seven companies that have decent funding that are chasing a private space station and things like space manufacturing and pharmaceutical production and research and all of that. That's all very interesting, but there's also everything that's going in and, you know, sort of Jan's part of the market, which is going to be around, you know, miniaturization of technologies, which makes small satellites massively more capable, the ability to launch them cheaper on vehicles like what Orbex is building. So that's enabling all kinds of things in the sort of communications observation data sphere. There's there's a lot of different parts of the industry that are accelerating it. At Radian, we always say we we can definitely do satellite launch and we can definitely do small satellite launch, but we often say that that's, that's the least interesting thing that we can do. Uh, What's the most interesting thing you can do? It's a, it's a debate inside the company, but I'm going to say one of the most interesting things is that unlike capsule-type vehicles that are reusable, you know, that we're more familiar with, uh, the Radian vehicle can carry two times the down mass of its up mass. So if we take X to space, it can carry 2X of that weight back from space. And why that's such a big deal is if you think about a future where we're going to be making things in space or we're going to be sending a lot more people into space or we're going to be doing more things than we were doing before, then uh, a traditional type capsule system, if it brings X up, generally speaking, and the designs vary, but it can bring 50 to 60% of that mass back. At Radian, we bring two X back. So if you imagine a crude facility or you imagine a autonomous manufacturing uh, satellite or you imagine any of these new activities where we're, we're actually making products in space or we're moving a lot of people or goods or equipment that we might want to refurbish after use, the Radian vehicle is sort of fits into an ecosystem where we enable all of those things. So it really does revolutionize how big the market might be potentially. And by virtue of existing, starts creating new opportunities for other companies, other Do you think this direction of travel of companies like yours is going the right way? I mean, very often when new technologies comes along, there's this great scrabble for things, great scrabble to be part of the game. And lots of companies might fail and a few will come through. Certainly in the UK, I think most people hadn't really heard of UK launch until a couple of months ago. And I just kind of wanted to get a sense of what you felt about that particularly and and what you think the state of play is, particularly in the UK and the amount of companies now vying for... So, I mean, I think one of the challenges, a lot of people still believe that you know, they read to an extent what they see in the press and read in the media, etc. So it was a, lot a big of people, deal. It was the first time I, I'd seen it in the sort of mass media, people talking and about I think UK it, launch. And there was a lot of um, emphasis between what Virgin Orbit were planning to do and actually what happened and whether it was a success or whether it was a failure. And it was one of those things, launch is a difficult activity to do. And Virgin demonstrated that 
you have to keep trying at it, but it's not as simple as literally just going down a runway, in their case, carrying a rocket on the bottom of a 747, taking off, dropping the rocket, and it's all successful. The challenge about launch is that there were many different moving parts, and everyone has a different launch solution. So if you take, for example, um, Orbex's launch vehicle, you can't take the components from Radian's um, launch vehicle and switch them over. Mm. You know, You might be able to switch the paint over, um, you might be able to switch the, switch the upholstery over, but there's nothing basically common between the two vehicles. You, other you, you than probably can't switch the paint either. <laughs> yeah, you probably can't even switch the paint. I hope uh, they've yeah, got so, some nice upholstery in their yeah, rocket. Exactly. So it's I'm no imagining com- kind of Victorian leather, you know, with like in the... I would say with Orbex, it's going to be Victorian leather, um, you know, that inlay, means... very beautiful. Yeah. Radiant are very much, uh, you know, moving beyond the Jetsons, yeah. etc. So, But there's no commonality between them. So... If you're driving a car, different analogy, driving a car down the motorway and you basically get a puncture, there's a pretty good probability that you could hail one car passing in the next two to three minutes and say, look, terribly sorry, I've broken down, I need a new wheel. Could I borrow a wheel of your car? Now, they're probably not going to say to you, absolutely, take my wheel. But let's say hypothetically they did. There's a better than even chance that within five to six minutes, you could find another car passing where you could switch your wheels over. You can't do that with rockets at all. Any configuration, everything is unique. Mm. So that removing that commonality means that every lesson you learn yes. for every company is the first lesson that company learns. Now, and a good way of talking about this is Jan's background was in terms of something called Sea Launch. Jan, could you just talk about Sea Launch a little bit? Because that's a really interesting analogy, basically, I think, between where Orbex is today and where Sea Launch were going. Yeah, I'm happy to. And um it's actually every time I bring that up, people think I'm loopy because Sea Launch for 20 years was a joint venture between Ukraine, Russia, and the US. We all sat around the same table. How is your rocket going to work with this bit? How are the US tech going to work with the Ukrainian box there, for instance? That type of thing. It was actually amazing to observe from the sort of inside because I'm from Norway. And we were also a joint venture partner because we built the two ships, the platform and the support ship. So that's a very important part of it. But um, yeah, that was a rather insane project. And When was that? About when was that? The first launch was in um, March 1999. Okay. And it lasted till about 14 when the last and the 35th launch was. And the idea was you were, launching, then, you were launching rockets off a, off a floating platform or a, or a ship? Yeah, a, a converted oil rig. And by 14, the Ukrainians and Russians were quite loggerhead anyway. <laughs> so they didn't work very well yeah. that time. So it, it sort of stopped. But yeah, it was absolutely a fascinating project. And uh, as I said, it's those satellites that are so-called geostationary has to be launched eastwards. Mm-hmm. And the platform was at zero degree. It was the most ideal location you could get. And that gave us a lot of sort of, I don't know, free energy or whatever you call it. But uh, it was certainly very, very helpful. So we launched satellites that were pretty much the size of a London bus, you know, six tons, that type of thing. And um, TV satellites mainly. Most of them are still running, you know, Echo Star and Direct TV and people like that. But that, that's a fascinating project. Yeah. But it's difficult, isn't it, John? Because you wouldn't be able to take anything realistically on the sea launch vehicles. I mean, you probably could pull the engines, maybe the RD-10s, et cetera, which are probably the best Ukrainian rocket engines in the world, actually the best rocket engines at some point in the world. But you wouldn't be able to take much in the way of that technology and apply it to Orbex today. And Jeff, I'm guessing you might be able to use a few fasteners, but they were probably um, metric and you guys were imperial, so I'm guessing not. <laughs> 
Yeah, it really is. A, it, the point, the broad point you were making earlier and sort of revisiting again, Mike, is that, you know, each system has its own, so much of its own technology, own approach, own elements, own bits and pieces that it really is hard to, to do transferability between them. But the way I think about the market as it's developing or particularly what we, you know, what we would call the launch market as it's developing is it looks very much like early aviation where early on the industry broadly did not know what was going to be the right solution. So, you know, you saw airplanes with one wing and two wings and three wings, and you saw everybody trying everything in the world. And yes, it's true. Many of those did not survive. Many of them did. And then, but even once it was optimized, there was a wide range of market segments. Even today, you have, you know, large numbers of little single-engine four-seat planes that gets built. Let me tell you about it. I've been a pilot since I've been 19. But at the same time, you have, you know, aircraft that can carry hundreds of people halfway around the world. So even though those are using the same, perhaps, yeah. principles, it's not strange that the market should have wildly different pieces of equipment in it that... People are going to try lots of different solutions. And, you know, even though it's aviation, again, I, there's probably not much that's transferable between a single engine plane and a 737. No, that's there's, good. You know, it's not like you could swap parts there either. And it's, that's why we have good so analogy. many companies, basically. Well, that's, that's exactly, exactly it. That's a really, really around. good an, yeah. analogy. And, and, you know, when you look at early aviation, you see those crazy planes with like five layers of wings. And you look at some of the launch. Exactly. And in the same way, things. you know, if you look at early aviation again, 100 years ago in, in the 1920s, you had companies like Lockheed and Grumman who hadn't even merged together, et cetera, at that point, all building both the airplane, the engine, the landing gear, the upholstery, building the runway. Today, you've got still probably 50 or 60 companies building narrow and wide body aircraft. But for example, they buy their engines for the most part from either Rolls-Royce or General Electric. That's who you go for gas turbine engines. And there's a few other folks out there. If you want to build a rocket today, you can't go to the equivalent of kind of screw fix and go, and I'll have one of those and one of those, and I'll have six of those. You have to do it right. all yourself. When we talk about optimization, do you think there's going to be um, horizontal solutions and vertical solutions will kind of be the, the two things, if you like? I don't think balloons are going to uh, cut it personally. Balloons, uh, spinning... Spinning things, spinning balloons, things. Um, I so want Stargate. the spinning thing to work. Stargate yeah. would be good. Yeah, a Stargate would be fabulous, but I don't. I think... You know, I'm not putting any money on balloons, spinny things, or stargates. Mm. Things which go up vertically are things which go up horizontally. I think there's a place for both of them. And I think we'll see probably give it another 10 years. And instead of the 300 or so companies globally, because that's how many are trying to build launch vehicles. How many? 300? 300. There's about 20 in the UK. Um, I discovered another one last night. They literally come out of the woodwork and they tell you, I've, I'm going to do this. I'm going to change the world. There's so many satellites which need to be launched, and I've got this unique solution. And Jeff and Jan and myself, and I'm sure you've probably heard it before, Dallas, we've probably always gone, oh, that's your unique solution. Spinning thing, balloon, vertically, horizontal. You know, it, it takes it takes some really good imagination yeah. to come up with something else now. Yeah. But most of those are going to consolidate into probably 10 or 15 companies. But it, it's also worth mentioning that the horizontal thing is not new. We talk about it as if it's no. something new. It's been around for a while. That's right. You can see the, some of the orbital, you know, the, the uh, whatever they call those those uh, systems they have now. There were a lot of concepts looking at at horizontal early on. I mean, when when we were toying with this idea very notionally, we were looking at studies and papers and work that had been done all through the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And there's a lot of work that had been done. And the for us, the big transition was realizing that, you know, 
a number of technology areas, but particularly material science had come just far enough that it really was going to be viable. You know, um, a lot of the members of our team, both advisors and our senior management, are people who had worked on those systems and intimately knew these were the elements that we just couldn't make happen the last time some of these things had been tried. So yeah, I think from a technology standpoint, there aren't a ton of brand new ideas. There's a lot of bringing new tools and new capability to ideas that had been flirted with in the past. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what the other thing I wanted to ask you, just coming back to the UK specifically, if there's lots of lots of companies trying to get in on on this on this market, there seems to be a lot of launch sites as well discussed. I mean, you mentioned. Um, Jan, that you were launching in Sutherland, I think, up in the yep, north, yep, north yep. of Scotland. But then I, I, there's some on the Outer Hebrides up there in the north Saxo, US. There's and, Saxofold and Spaceport One, which are both vertical um, in Scotland. Prestwick. Um, Prestwick is horizontal. Cornwall. Cornwall, Clambedda, which is a really long runway um, yeah, um, off the coast of um, Wales, etc. So there's about seven spaceports, and I, I hear rumours of people looking at building spaceports or wanting to build spaceports off the coast of Norfolk. So, you know, there's a lot of locations. I mean, the UK's got probably slightly more disproportionately desires to build spaceports than probably almost anywhere else in Europe. Well, that's what I was saying. Have we gone a bit spaceport crazy? Are, are we? Is it all a bit hypey and actually what we just need is two spaceports? I mean, well, can the market could, suggest... We probably could do a one spaceport. I don't spaceport. know if it's hypey, but I, th- I think it's, it's when the uh, government or the UK space agency decided to support this industry properly and they backed... Orbex, they backed Lockheed Martin with, with their project. And also they picked one or two spaceports. And they didn't say, this is going to be it. This is going to be spaceport in the UK and that's it. They actually, if anybody else has a, has a valid business case to explain why it's going to work launching from there instead of there, then they will not stop that in any way. They might even consider supporting it. So the support of the UK government and the sector has spread out quite uh, quite wide, if you like. I mean, in a way, it's been partially driven by regulation as well. The UK's tried to yeah. set itself apart in some respects, but by not necessarily throwing perhaps the level of investment we'd like to see ideally into technology and manufacturing. But they've looked hard at regulation and said, what does the UK do really well? And actually, while it's not as exciting, we do finance really well and we do regulation really well mm. and insurance. And if we can set up the right regulatory frameworks for operation of um, launch vehicles, um, orbital license for spacecraft, our licenses for spaceports, then we can try and set the standards. So it's like trying to create the next standard for your um, recharging adapter for a phone. So what's sort of USB-D or something like that? If you can set that standard and get everyone else to follow it, that's a pretty good revenue line as well. Mm. And that attracts other industries and things to work with you. So that's why we have a lot of spaceports, because anyone who wasn't a spaceport, if they're horizontal, for example, has gone, well, Cornwall's got a long one way. We've got a long one way. You know, oh, Heathrow, we could be a... No, you can't be a spaceport Heathrow. Um, that gets really bad. That's where things start falling literally on us. In <laughs> Heathrow Oxford would be the worst spaceport ever. I mean, I can see it happening. I mean, that's tangentially in the future. I could see, you know, Terminal run, 1 being resurrected at Heathrow and becoming, you know, Terminal Space. Who knows? But yeah. um, I think Jeff was going to probably make a point to that. To a couple things. So uh, fun in history, if, if John gets to tell about Sea Launch, you know, my very first job was working for uh, a company, a nonprofit, if you will, that was representing spaceports in the US 20 years ago, when we had the first emergence of the same thing you're seeing now in the UK. And, you know, there are a lot of factors that drive it, not the least tends to be that 
you know, municipalities look at a new emerging industry and they say, well, we've got some infrastructure that is lightly used or not used as much as we'd like to see. Is there a way we can take advantage of that? That's not a abnormal or even a bad thing. So I, I would say- Mojave, you know, was a, is, Mojave springs to mind. Yeah. I, I, was, I was sort of thinking yeah. there. What do we do with a place like Mojave that's, you know, the, the center of the world for aviation test? How do we start- cracking that into the world of space test. It's, it was a logical step and, you know, it made well. That hanging out at, I, I, t I think I told this to Mike when I, one of my first visits, not visits to the UK, but visits to the UK focused on space. When I saw what was going on with Westcott, I was thinking to myself, this, this feels like Mojave felt 25 years ago. Remind our listeners what Westcott. So Westcott is um, in the same way Mojave and other sites in the United States were kind of the birthplace for the US um, space race. Um, in the UK, um, Westcott Venture Park, which is in Buckinghamshire, right. is the location of where the UK originally started all its rocket propulsion research. Got it. So for Black Arrow and Blue Streak, but more recently, companies like NAMO and Airborne Engineering and others are beginning to make their first steps in terms of next generation space propulsion for both launch and in space. And as Jeff describes, it's a big Second World War airfield with old buildings scattered <laughs> across it and rocket test sites and test stands and facilities. But it feels very much like Mojave in its infancy in the same way. Yeah. Mojave, is, there's something really badass about Mojave. There's something really cool. Well, it's just by the name itself. Well, Mojave, and it's by Edwards Air Force Base, and they've got that cool diner, and there's that kind of weird roton You've rockets. spent a lot of time there, haven't you? I have. Yeah. I, keep, I keep going back there just because there's, I don't know, it's got that sort of tumbleweed um, vibe going on. But anyone in the space and launch <laughs> sector knows that. And it's like... It, Places like in Kazakhstan, or if, you, if you've been lucky enough to go to Ukraine um, pre-war, in terms of cities like Dnipro, which basically are the rocket city, mm. where they were turning out launch vehicles literally on a monthly basis, at a cadence which is nothing like you know anywhere else realistically in the world has ever seen so there were these like kind of like little historical places where if you're either an enthusiast a company which builds rockets etc these are the kind of the legendary places yeah. where you go I'm, i've been lucky I, I went out to baikonur a couple of times and baikonur is a pretty i'm sure you've been there it's a pretty crazy place you know it's it's stuck there in the 1950s and and and, and most of these it, places haven't changed i mean that's no, the kind of reflection of rockets is a lot of things haven't changed and no. that's why we've got you know go back into that earlier conversation we're having is why does everyone try and do something different well a lot of the new kids on the block are kind of looking at, at all these sites and saying well it's not changed we can do better than that we can build it you know your spinny thing for example we can use a balloon or something we can do something different so it's that kind of drive of you haven't changed how you're doing it we can change how you're doing it and we can do it better the caveat there is which most of these new companies forget is it's really difficult to do some of these things. And when they go wrong, you often end up with, in the case of, for example, ABL recently, you end up with no rocket. Or in the case with um, Virgin Orbit, you end up with your satellites somewhere else where they shouldn't be. So it's really difficult to do. And if you basically don't listen to the people who know what they've done, and they all tend to be a little bit older and more grisly as a consequence of this, then you will end up making exactly the same mistakes. I've got, actually, Mike, you just brought something up there, which is interesting. You had a satellite on the Virgin orbit that sadly ended up in the Atlantic. In the sea eventually, yes. Can you just sort of take us through your feelings? I mean, we all saw it on the news and we were all disappointed and then it fell off the news cycle. And I'm just interested in your feelings about the whole project generally and, and, and how you felt about your... Sure. So 
We, as Satellite Applications Catapult, um, have an in-orbit demonstration program, and we were flying our third in-orbit demonstration spacecraft, known as ID3, but also known as Ambersat. And this was in conjunction with a company called Horizon Technologies. And this um, satellite was basically designed to collect signals from ships which might be conducting piracy-based operations, people smuggling, and other activities. Now, very small satellite, something about the size of a shoebox, and that's most small satellites are typically that size. That's part of that revolution. Mm. So we had that on board the um, Virgin Orbit launch vehicle. And, you know, as with everything, as with any launch, there's always a degree of exhilaration and excitement about it. But at the same time, if you've done anything with rockets or satellites, there's always that sense of reservation of every time it, um, it happens and it goes to plan is in a way good luck. And frequently things don't go to plan. So a lot of my team were very enthusiastic and thought this was fabulous. And some of my team and some of the wider catapult were a little bit more, okay, we're going to be pragmatic about this. Things don't always go to plan. And we knew very rapidly things weren't going to plan. And Virgin had to make that fairly difficult decision, basically, of both trying to maintain that level of interest and engagement. But at the same time, with as with any launch provider, how do you convey that message of things are going wrong? You can't state basically very rapidly, particularly if it's very public, and the Virgin Orbit launch was very public. Yeah. It's very difficult to manage that audience. I mean, Jan's got the fairly dramatic experience of, I think it was the largest insurance claim in maritime history until a more recent rig issue. In, in, in space history, yeah. That's awesome. That's a, that's a record to have. I'm not going to mention any names, but I sat next to the customer... And the satellite, or the rocket rather, went about, um, what is this, two inches up and then came down again <laughs> and blew up. Were words discussed and exchanged at that moment? I mean, he when... was thankfully a very experienced guy. He didn't jump at me and started hitting me or anything. So he, <laughs> he, uh, he took it in his stride. But it was a very uh, subdued atmosphere for a long time afterwards. And the loss was... Uh, well, well in excess of $400 million. $400 I mean, crazy. and, you know, for the Virgin Orbit launch vehicle, which was actually comparatively small, so that, and slightly different because the aircraft went away carrying the rocket, the rocket got dropped, um, the first stage ignited, but then things started to go wrong. The aircraft fortunately came safely back with the crew. In Jan's case for the sea launch, I mean, the rocket you guys launched was significantly larger than um, a Virgin Orbit launch vehicle, basically. Yeah, it's about 20 meters long, I think. Of it, um, and like it had a pretty bad impact on the platform you were launching from as well. This wasn't the sort of thing where you get a small explosion and you pick up the bits later with um, a dustpan and you, brush. You can, you can, you can um, I'm not going to show it to you, but you can look it up on YouTube. We can, uh, our listeners can Google it. Sea launch on, on pad explosion, yeah. So that that um, is a tiny, tiny piece of metal, you know, like a like a hail almost. You've had got into the wrong place and caused something to then to go wrong in the turbo pump. And that's really interesting you say that, Jan, because as you said, it was a tiny piece of metal, but it was exactly the same with Virgin Orbit. The reason that their second stage failed was a filter basically upstream of a pump dislodged this and they, and Dan Hart, their CEO, said it was about a hundred dollar item and it got swept downstream and then it got jammed oh, and then not enough fuel could get in. Yeah, the engine overheated yeah. and the rocket, instead of going upwards as we were wanting it desperately to go upwards, started to go downwards. And at that point, it's game over. Can I just, I need to wrap up, but I just want to ask just on that. Jeff, how important is PR in your business? How important is selling your idea to the public in order to, for the politicians to then get on board and for the, the investors to get on board? And It's an interesting question because one thing I know that John and I have in common is that I feel very strongly that the, the space industry particularly has a long, long history of companies announcing they're going to do 
you know, big things and then never doing those things or not having the financing to do those things, making a big announcement. So Radian has intentionally kept a very low profile. And while we are out and we do a little bit of PR now, uh, we're still doing that. In time, that will become a big, very important part of it. But when you're still at the, you know, Radio has $30 million that we've taken in in the last year, and we're still, you know, that's a drop in the bucket on the scale of the amount of money that you need to spend to make a project like this work. So as we mature, that will become a very important part of it. But when you're still in the building out the key elements, building the first version of many of our key pieces of technology, it's almost, <laughs> not that I don't love you guys, but it's it's almost more of a distraction to be engaging a great deal with the outside world because it's it's endless questions about, yeah. oh, yeah. exactly which week is it going to fly? You know, those sort of things. I can understand that. It must be, you know, I can understand that balance you need very often if you you know, if you overpromise, you're yeah. also going to over disappoint. So Radian have kept that wrong. very stealth aspect, yeah. and it's the same with Orbex. Orbex, I mean, trying to get Jan onto a podcast has been difficult. Basically, trying to get Orbex to talk about what they do is difficult because companies like this, which are, um, in my view, going to be successful, keep a very low That's, profile. They wow. don't talk about what they do. They don't tell anyone what they do. They just do it progressively, slowly. And neither of these companies will tell you. You will not get a launch date out of either of them. Orbex can, have got a nice, sexy video, though. They've, they've got, got a nice, sexy nice video. Video. But there's nothing in there which says we're going to launch on this date. And the problem with having a launch date, and Virgin did this, they, Virgin originally wanted to launch on a specific date. And if you do that, the problem is the wider population holds you to it. Yeah. So the best thing about launches, don't give a date. Both Jeff and Mike, they're absolutely right. And, and we haven't done anything of substance yet. We haven't launched anything. So, you know, how much do you brag? How much do you PR about yeah. it? So you talk about when you get some money coming in. We had the prototype that we revealed, uh, was it yeah, last year? Last year Things in like April, that. I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also the fact that we did a... a, a, a um, we changed the setup at the spaceport. So Orbex will be responsible for you know, putting the spaceport together. So it's all be tailor-made to us. That type, those things are worth saying. But uh, other things are sometimes just worth keeping quiet about. That is good advice for life, I think. Don't overshare. Jan and Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your wit and your knowledge. It's been terrific listening to you. Uh, Mike, just a final word from you. Um, just give us a very, very brief, uh, a couple of lines on, on the state of play at the moment. Are you excited? Are you in without giving us a date about when the next launch is going to be, but are you are you optimistic about things in the UK? I am pragmatic as ever about launch because launch and space and a whole myriad of other sectors which lead us to achieving success are all difficult and all challenging. But challenging and ingenuity is what we do well. So I'm pragmatic that launch in the UK will manifest. I'm not going to agree to a date, as anyone else basically says, for the next launch from any company. But I think companies like Orbex and Radian, who hopefully will operate out the UK in due course, and many others, will basically start laying the foundations for successful activities, including launch. Good stuff. Thank you very much, for everyone, for, for joining us in this chat. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your company. To hear future episodes of In Orbit, be sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And to find out more about how space is empowering industries between episodes, you can visit the Catapult website or join them on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. <laughs>